twist in this book in chapter 4. We kind of like, we came to the end of it here at the end of 3. I mean, Nineveh's repented, God relents for the punishment. That would be a wonderful ending to this nice little book, right? Well, it's not quite the end yet. So chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said? Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. Wow. How did Jonah feel? Because? Yes. Now this is really ironic. His preaching is super successful and he's furious. <laughs> you know, Elijah got really down, but that's because he failed. Jonah gets really upset because he was so successful. A, he's angry because God's not when he thinks he ought to be. It just burns him up that God has relented and is not going to punish Nineveh. And now we learn why Jonah had not gone to Nineveh in the first place. Because he says, and think, listen to how he must have said this in verse 2. Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Can't can you just feel him? He just, argh, he's infuriated. You know, this is just a regrettable weakness in God's character. He's just a softy. You know, he's just gracious and compassionate again. You know, he couldn't stand the Lord. He goes on a tirade against him. God's greatest attributes are just loathsome to Jonah. Because Nineveh ought to be destroyed. And it's not right that God doesn't destroy him. And that's what he knew what God would do. I just knew it. That's why I never wanted to go in the first place. I knew that you'd let up on them. I knew they'd repent. And I knew you'd be gracious. It's just the way you always do it. What do you think about Jonah in that? Well, you would think he would appreciate the loving kindness of God and that he saved him from drowning in the ocean. Yes, hello. It had been fine for God to be gracious to him. You see that? He, God's too free with his mercy. I want it, but don't give it to them. <laughs> you know, I mean, if it hadn't been for the grace and mercy and kindness of God, Jonah wouldn't have been alive to complain about those qualities. <laughs> Are we ever like that? You know, we want God to be gracious to us, but not to our enemies. You know, some people deserve God's grace and some people don't. <laughs> Is that what we think? As if there was any way to deserve grace. You know, and you have to remember how much Israel hates Assyria. You know, I mean, it is just um, this kind of national prideful prejudice thing. 
Don't you see that with the Jews quite a bit? You know, they were God's chosen people, but they were actually chosen by God's grace, not because they were so great. But somehow or other, they warped that into, oh, we're special, wonderful people, and nobody else deserves what we, what we deserve, and all this kind of stuff. As, do we as Christians ever get that way? You know, well, we are the ones who receive God's grace. As if there was something in us that made God want to be gracious to us. And uh, so, then if you get that prideful smugness, then it's easy to just look down on everybody else. And, uh, you know, those, those terrible, despicable sinners. You know, we wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. So you can see kind of where Jonah's coming from in that. And uh, what does Jonah request from God? To die. He can't make up his mind what he wants, can he? You know, it's kind of like giving God an ultimatum. Choose between him or them. Either destroy me or them. You know, isn't that kind of what he's saying? Just go ahead and kill me. You know, I don't want to live. So, what does God do in verse 4? Calls him out on Is it right for you, man? I'm not even sure if it's only calling him out. It's almost gently, you know, asking him to reflect. You know, I mean, think about this. You know, do you have good reason to be angry? Here's the God who rules the wind and the sea, who's stooping down to hold a conversation with a pouting child. Isn't that about what this is? You know, and he's concerned for Jonah. I don't think I'd have been concerned for Jonah any more than I'd have been concerned for Nineveh. But God is. Even his rebellious prophet, he's trying to get to come back to him. So Jonah goes out from the city, sat east of it, makes a shelter and just sits under it until he sees what's going to happen. You know, he's going to hold to his convictions. He's going to wait out God. It's almost like a little kid saying, I'm going to hold my breath and destroy the city. You know, <laughs> just got to see him just stomping out and plopping down. Okay, we're just going to wait and see. <laughs> Who does Jonah think he is? You know, I mean, wow. Jonah's arrogant. I mean, anytime we ever get miffed at God and we think, oh, God, you just, you just blew it on this one. Who in the world are we to critique God? And especially we who have been the beneficiaries of God's grace and mercy to complain about him extending that to other people. Thoughts and comments on all this? Really makes you think, Garrett. I was going to go and read uh, 2 Peter uh, 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slack and was long-suffering toward us we're not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance like you know Jonah wants him to destroy the city but God gave them you know ample time he gave them 40 days to repent and all that took them was one and you know back when Jonah was sinking you know God could have easily just right there whenever he threw him in immediately taken you know some wave crashed over him and he died or you know when he went into the ship all that this storm could have broken up the ship and everyone could have died but the Lord you know waited and gave them time to repent and like that that's important like God gives us time and so 
and you know that's the the, the important thing of that Jonah's like that's the bad thing, but that's the great thing about God is He is gracious and He is merciful, and like He gives us that time and He'll wait for us and He'll work with us, and you know we're the ones in the wrong, but He's still there guiding. Like, Amen. And those are difficult things even to believe about God. I mean, the statements Jonah makes in verse two about God's grace and compassion are practically citations of a number of other passages that say those very things about God. And that is a part of God's character, is his goodness and love and mercy. I think there are times that we have a harder time believing that about God than we can believe in his wrath and his punishment. And we need a balanced view of God. I know there are people who only see God's nice guy side and they don't ever see his wrath. But there are some days that we only see his wrath, especially toward everybody else. And we don't have the sense of forgiveness and love and mercy that he has. So it's really helpful for us to try to see all sides of God's character. And to just meditate, I mean, would you have forgiven a Nineveh? Would you have entreated a Jonah? The same God that throws a party for the prodigal son, walks out to entreat the elder brother too. He's amazingly merciful. And, and we will never, ever even be able to serve God until we appreciate his mercy. Because we're goners without it. We're hopeless. And I think a lot of times our problem in serving God is as much the problem of believing in God's grace and forgiveness as it is in fearing his wrath. Both of those are hard for us sometimes. So this is a really important thing for us to grasp. Other thoughts? Chris? Is this, is Jonah's uh, problem more the fact that, I mean, is there anything uh, about it that he's concerned about his nation and himself and his life because of Assyria, or is it more that someone else is getting something, kind of like the workers, you know, that worked all day and received the same wage, they were, it wasn't Against it wasn't going to hurt them. It was just they were jealous that they had worked more and, and didn't receive more. So you can look at this in two ways. One, he doesn't like God giving away the grace to others. Or is it, if you let them live, that may cost my life. Or could it be somewhat both? It could be. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder about him saying, way to take my life now, is that maybe a reference to, if you let them live, that's a death sentence for us. Well, there's certainly the aspect of the national nature of Assyria, the national grudge against them. Certainly, Assyria was the menacing nation. So I, I think you've definitely got that. I don't think this is, uh, this is not in a vacuum. This is because of who the Ninevites are. But I suspect also he doesn't think they deserve it. I suspect you've got a blending of those things. Uh, but but I do agree that you know as an Israelite you don't want none of us staying around. Uh, good point. Other thoughts. All right, uh, six to eleven. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to be shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. 
But God appointed a worm, and dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so that he became faint, and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and for which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Well, in verse 6, God appoints this plant. And it grows up in Jack and the Beanstalk fashion to shade him overnight. And how does Jonah feel about that plant? Tell you what, his mood is entirely transformed. I think this is the first time in the book we see him happy about anything. And he's really happy about this plant, and he's happy about this plant because... He likes the shade, that's exactly right. He loves himself. And he loves staying cool. So this is a wonderful thing for Jonah. You know, this kind of brings up the question, does God have the right to be gracious when and where he pleases? Or is the only right grace of God is when he's extending it to Jonah himself? You know, Jonah seems very happy when God is merciful to him. It's only when God's merciful to his enemies that he doesn't like it. Um, so then, what does God do? <clears throat> yeah. God did to the plant what Jonah wanted God to do to Nineveh. He destroyed it. It's really the only destruction you see in the book. And it ought to be, make Jonah happy. Because that's what Jonah likes, right? It's destruction. But only for his enemies, not for the plant that was shading him. So Jonah experiences the very scenario that he's wishing on Nineveh. He wants Nineveh destroyed, God destroys the plant instead by this worm. And so how does Jonah feel now? Not too much. Yeah, he's just... Just kill me. Just kill me. Death is better to me than life. You know, victims of self-pity are just pathetic. You know, he's outraged that the plant's been annihilated. He's lost all patience with God. You know, I mean, he's just fed up. God just does everything wrong. You know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And he might as well just die. And uh, so you can see Jonah's just pettiness and selfishness. And God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Isn't it interesting that God is going out to entreat Jonah again? He is still merciful to Jonah. He's still working with Jonah. Still concerned about Jonah. And what's Jonah's answer? Even to death, I'll be angry. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Jonah defends to, to the nth degree. He has every right to be angry about this plant. I mean, think about it. What did he do for the plant? He had nothing to do with the plant coming up or shading him. 
but he sure is mad when it's taken away. Are we ever like that? Think about how we can get a blessing that we had nothing to do with receiving. And we're overjoyed about the blessing, but then it's taken away and we get mad. What if we'd have never had the blessing in the first place? You know? It's like, well, wait a minute. It wasn't your work to get the blessing. It was the Lord's. I just think we, we so often get accustomed to our level of blessings and then cry bloody murder when they're taken away. But I mean, really, that's not fair. If you stop and think about it. So I think that's a, a you know, powerful lesson in and of itself. And, and God said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. I mean... How could his attachment to this plant have been very deep anyhow? It was here one day and gone the next. You know, he did nothing for it. You know, and God says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? I mean, Jonah's priorities are out of order. Don't let my plant be hurt by the worm, but let the Ninevite perish. That's it. You know, if you care about this plant, here's a plant you had nothing to do with, go up overnight, perish overnight, and you, you're worried about the destruction of the plant. What about me with this whole city of people that's got 120,000 ignorant people in it and many animals? Why does he mention the animals? They repented. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Good point. And maybe that part up. Aren't animals worth more than a plant? I would think. So, I mean, if nothing else, shouldn't I spare Nineveh for all the animals in it, let alone the 120,000 people who don't seem to know the right from the left? You know, God sees the Ninevites as kind of in kindergarten, or nursery school, or whatever. You know, they don't know as much as Jonah does. And uh, so... Uh, the, uh, even the animals alone would be worth more than the uh, plant God, Jonah got so attached to. I mean, you think about how Jonah only thinks about one thing. Jonah. Right? <laughs> He's the epitome of selfishness in this. Now, the book of Jonah ends in a question. You've heard me teach this before. Do you realize that in the English Bible... There's only one other book in the Bible that ends in a question. It's the other book that is mostly devoted to the city of Nineveh. Very good, John. What is it? For all whom has their evil past continuing. What is that? What book is that? Nahum. Nahum. Yeah. And that, I don't know what to do with that. That's just a Bible trivia question as far as I'm concerned. But it is curious. That the only two books dealing with Nineveh both end in the question. And the uh, Portuguese Bible, I think Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon or something like that ends in the question too. I don't know why the difference, but anyhow, in English it seems to work well to uh, come up with that question. Uh, I want you to think about some applications from just this last chapter. Just this resentment on Jonah's part. I, you know... I think it rebukes nationalistic attitudes and improper patriotism. I mean, this is so Jewish. <laughs> you know, this idea of, you know, we don't want God being merciful to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians. 
We're the only ones. We're God's specially chosen favored people. Um, and that's just not the right attitude. But I think Americans think that way. You know, we are God's blessing to the world. And I mean, it's like, you. every once in a while you hear somebody saying, why go somewhere else to preach? We've got plenty of lost people around here. You know? Or, well, you know, we look down on people of other nations and races and almost resent their sharing in the gospel. How does God look at people? Does God really think America is the special nation that he favors and all the other nations are bad and we're the great one? No! God loves all men. Now, he wants us to repent. But anybody who will repent from any nation, he wants to bless. He wants to be gracious to them. Jesus did not just die for Americans. He died for everybody. But this this Israelite attitude of, you know, we're God's chosen people and we don't want anybody else receiving this is the wrong thing. You know, it amazes me a little bit that the Jews didn't try to somehow cut Jonah out of the Bible. <laughs> you know, really, you look at the Jews in Jesus' day and their attitudes toward the Samaritans and toward the Gentiles. This book strongly shows in the Old Testament God's grace and mercy to non-Jews. There's a lot of passages that do. In fact, who was the first Jew? Abraham. Abraham. God chose Abraham so that through his descendant he could bless all nations. nations. I mean, from the very beginning of God's choice of Abraham, he chose Abraham so he could especially favor and bless the Jews. No. He chose him so that through his descendants, and that one descendant especially, all the nations could be blessed. So God never intended this to be just a favoritism thing for them. Or what about even just people in our country that we look down on? I've I probably told this story in some of these contexts before. But I spent lots of time in the late 80s in a prison in Kentucky teaching guys. And one guy that had been converted was getting out and going back home. And I was looking for a church. It was in another state. And so I did some checking, talking to people, and found out about what was supposed to be a good church. And so I called the preacher there. I knew of him. I didn't know him. But he had a good reputation. So I called him and explained to him the situation. He's this guy. He's getting out of prison, blah, 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 blah. And he's been converted. And I'd like to find a good church for him to worship with that would be encouraging and helpful and accepting of him and so forth. You know what that preacher said? He said, well, I think any church would have a hard time with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Needless to say, I continued looking. And thank God I found another church, probably a little bit closer to him, that was extremely encouraging. I went there with him the first service. They embraced him. He later fell away. But it wasn't because of their not doing everything possible to try to be encouraging and accepting and helpful to them. They had a wonderful attitude. I appreciated that very much. And they were very much taking initiative to reach out to him, which is the way it ought to be. He had done some bad things. Um, but, but haven't we all when it's all said and done? And, you know, I don't think this was a question, certainly from what he did, of him being dangerous to somebody or whatever, even it wasn't that. Uh, but it's like, you know, sometimes, well, you know, they don't deserve us. You know, ooh, that's bad. Well, 
You know, all, all of those things are relative to what we've done. Any sin I haven't committed is a bad one. The sins I do are not so bad. Isn't that what we really deep down feel? And God's looking at all of us and saying, well, I think you're all bad. You know, I don't see that distinction. Now, obviously, people need to repent. I'm not saying that you know people ought to be encouraged in their sin. But people who repent need encouragement. You remember this, the man who lived with his father's wife when in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul encouraged him to reaffirm your love for him and comfort him so he won't be overcome by excessive sorrow? It's hard to do that. You ever seen somebody who's done something pretty bad? Church withdrew from him. He came back. You're like... I don't know if I really want to trust him now. You know, I'm afraid he'll just fall away again. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put him on probation for a while, see how he does. You know, after a while, if he does really well, maybe we'll accept him. Well, when is he the most vulnerable? When he's just coming back, he needs the encouragement. Will he fall away again? Well, he might, or we might, you know? But that doesn't change the fact that we need to love him and care about him like the Lord does. So I think there's just some great lessons in resentment against resentment here and pride and then the other thing I wanted to stress we're not to the final point or anything yet but but just also just applications about the selfishness of Jonah you know what makes Jonah happy himself his own comfort what he wants what makes him upset his discomfort you know I mean do you get more upset about some little something that goes wrong in your life or somebody who's leaving the Lord? You know? I mean, we, we just we become so self-focused. and you, There's nothing that shows you what somebody's really like as much as what excites them the most and what upsets them the most. And if you stop and think about that with yourself, aren't they very selfish things? You know, we get more excited about winning a game than we do about the plight of our lost neighbor you know, bothering us or whatever. Thoughts and comments on those kinds of applications from, from Jonah's life? Or anything you want to say to this point? Yeah, Rachel. We need, something I noticed was that um, he didn't realize what a blessing he had when he had the plant. And as soon as it was gone, he realized that it, was, that it meant a lot. But it's applicable to us, to us, especially as Americans, because we have so many blessings that many people in the world don't even dream of having. If we have food and we have shelter, and there are some people out there who just don't have that and would love to have the opportunity to eat something good for once. And we need to count our blessings and just remember that we've got stuff that a lot of people don't have. Good point. Definitely. Other thoughts? I was going to say that, um, you know, throughout this whole book, um, we see that, you know, God does what. What God wants to happen ends up happening, you know. Uh, we don't know if Jonah, like, eventually sees, you know, the air, like, most right. likely he did. But, you know, God wanted to make a point, and he made that point. You know, God wanted Nineveh to have that option to be saved. You know, they had that option. God wanted Jonah to go preach to Nineveh, and, you know, whatever he wanted, you know, happened. And so that was that was really important. Like, I, I feel that's important, because whether or not we're with God, things are going to happen. And we either can join in with them, or we'll fight against them. And when you fight against it, it's not a fun fun ride. You know, you end up sinking down, being eaten by a fish just to get back up. But um, Or maybe going out and having to lay in the sun and just wanting to die because it's so hot. 
and that you're so angry about something, but you know God's going to do what He wants, and we, you know, the, the the option is not being with God, you know, being in in death, you know, spiritually or physically, you know, in this case when He was in the waters, but for us spiritually, and so you know we can't fight against it. You know, it's going one direction or the other, like. Good point. And I think it's a good point also. We don't really know what happened with Jonah. The fact that it ends with a question kind of leaves it in the air. But does it really matter what happened with Jonah as much as how we behave based upon this book? And really, the question is, how, what is our attitude? Other questions and thoughts so far? Evan? Uh, it's going in connection with uh, both of these comments. Is the, You see the comparison with the, like with the, the plan and the plan being taken away. He's like, you have the worm. But uh, don't forget about the east wind. Mm-hmm. Because where did the east wind come from? It's wind of the desert. It was hot. It wasn't the cool wind from the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. It was hot. And you see in this text that God is truly the God of, of, of all. Amen. You, you see that with uh, Nineveh. You see that with... Who, who was the uh, lover who was, who was healed? Uh, from, uh, from Syria. Name. Name it. He was, but no other lepers were healed, as it indicates. It was like, the, other than the name it. Uh, and you have that passage there in the New Testament. And it's just, it's just fascinating to see God is a God of all nations. Not just Israel, not just of America. God cares about all people to respond in the back. Amen. Yeah, great point. I now think about what I consider to be the theme of the book. Come back to chapter 1, verse 14. When they say at the end of 114, you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. I say God is the main character of the book, and nearly everything in the book obeys the Lord. Right? What all obeys the Lord in this book? The sea. The sea. Fish. The fish. Plant. The plant. The storm. The storm. The Ninevites. The Ninevites. The worm. The waste wind. The wind. The sailors. Wow! It's amazing the emphasis on God in this book. In fact, I believe out of 57 verses, the Lord is mentioned 46 times. Uh, He is the theme of this, and everything is obeying Him. Well, everything except for His prophet Jonah. However, there is another thing to think about with Jonah. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 11. Somebody made some reference to Matthew's account of this, uh, which is helpful as a background. But look at Luke 11, 29. As the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. 
Now, somebody did mention, what is the parallel here between Jesus and Jonah? Yes, a three-day burial followed by a resurrection. Jonah buried at sea, Jesus buried in the earth, but both of them were buried, so to speak, and were raised back up after three days. So that's the parallel. Matthew draws that out even more as far as that being the parallel reference. But the thing I want you to think about is this. He says that Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Now, how could Jonah be a sign to the Ninevites, especially when we're talking about the parallel between Jesus and Jonah? Jesus was assigned to this generation in that after three days he rose from the dead. Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites in that after three days he was raised from the sea. But can he have been assigned to the Ninevites if the Ninevites didn't know about it? So that tells me that the Ninevites knew about it. As we said, you would think if there were any witnesses on the shore, the news would have spread. I'm guessing there were, and it did. Because the passage says that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Now go back to the amazing nature of the wholesale repentance of Nineveh. I mean, we said it's just so incredible to think that this great pagan city repents after one day's preaching of one single enemy prophet. Well, maybe it's not so much if they knew about the fish story. If they knew about him being vomited out on dry land and all of that. Would you listen to a guy after he'd gone through all that? I think that is the explanation for why Nineveh was so prompt to repent. He was a sign to the Ninevites. Now, you'll have to think with me on this one, but this is the supreme irony of the book. Jonah fled because... He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want Nineveh to repent because he didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want God to spare them. Jonah wants to see Nineveh doomed. That's why he fled. That's why he got on the ship that was going to Tarshish. But Jonah's doing that set up, set in motion, a chain of events, the storm. The throwing him overboard, the praying, the fish swallowing him, and him being vomited back up on dry land. So Jonah's disobedience and rebellion and fleeing from God set in motion a chain of events that actually gave his message more credibility and made it more likely that Nineveh would repent. Now, Jonah was not trying to give his message more credibility. He was not trying to make it to where it was more likely Nineveh would repent. But do you remember our theme statement in the book of Jonah? You, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Now here's the genius of God. There are many, many things that obey God. 
wind, sea, plant, fish, worm, even mariners and Ninevites. There are some people who don't obey God because God gives us free choice, free will. And so if we choose to, He allows us to rebel. But God is such a powerful and wise God that he can even choose he can even use our freely chosen rebellion to accomplish his purpose. Isn't that amazing? I mean it makes you wonder what if Jonah had gone to Nineveh in the first place? Nineveh would never have repented like it did after the whole fish thing. So it may be that Jonah's effort to keep the Ninevites from hearing the message that would lead them to repent actually led them to repent when they heard the message. And that is the supreme irony. God does what he pleases, often through creatures that obey him promptly, but even through human beings that defy him. God is so wise he can use their acts of rebellion to contribute to his purpose also. You, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. That's really the book of Jonah. It shows you the greatness of God and it shows you how God does his will no matter what I choose. Isn't that crazy? That's an amazing thing about this story. You see, you all see that point? That makes sense? Let me emphasize this and then I'll open up for your comments. But here's the thing I want you to see among other things. Is there is so much in the Bible. I grew up thinking about this was the story about this fish. Oh no, I got, I got over that. And then I thought, well this is a story about Jonah going to heaven and preaching. Well then I read chapter 4 and realized, oh, the real story here is why Jonah didn't want to go and all that kind of But then when you really, really look at the book, it's like, whoa, I didn't even see the rest of this. This is really a story about the greatness of God and how he does what he pleases. And it took me years to ever see that. Now what I wonder is, wonder what there really is in this story that I don't see yet. And wonder what there is in every part of the Bible that we've never seen. You know, how much there is all through the scripture that's right there. But we just kind of sleepwalk through our Bible study. We don't read it very much. We, I remember hearing a guy a while back, this has been a few years ago, who said, well, he didn't need to read the Bible. He said, I read it three times. <laughs> wow. You know, <laughs> just, uh, that just defies uh, you know, uh, imagination for somebody to say that. But wow, there's so much more in everything in the Bible but you get it when you read it and 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 think about it. Thoughts and comments on all this? I just find it interesting in the comparison of Bible study with you know earthly study that we understand it in education that you know, you've got to apply it before you can understand it. But yeah, when it comes to the Bible, we think we can just open it up, read it, all right, that's good enough. You know? And that, I'll give my pet peeve, but that we can do a lot of this just random verse picking and we really get the deeper message. I'm not against topical studies, but if you want to see things like this, 
a, a mere pick a verse out here, there, and yonder is not going to give you this. You're going to have to look at the book, and you're going to have to see it, see it in the context. Once you do that well, you'll be much more accurate in how you use the verses in your other study. That's the thing. I mean, topical studies are best done by people who know every book really, really well. Because then you know what the passage is saying in context and how to properly use it. Other thoughts and comments? Well, I Chris? Was Jonah a prophet before or after this? <laughs> I'm guessing both. I don't know for sure when the prophecy in 2 Kings 14.25 would have been. I don't think there's any real way to know the date here when he prophesied against Nineveh. So I think it's kind of an open question for you. But I am assuming he wasn't unprofited at this point. I mean, God used some pretty, you know, problematic people to deliver his messages from time to time, right? I mean, even a Balaam, you know, a Balaam's donkey, or whatever. I mean, so God's not above using somebody who's got character weaknesses. I mean, look at David, you know, and so forth. Now, I don't understand David repented. Maybe Jonah did. I hope he did. Maybe he did. That's just kind of left open-ended, because it doesn't matter for us. So I hope Jonah was a prophet both before now. I guess just trying to get a picture, you know, sometimes I think of the prophets as full-time preacher prophets, you know, whereas we have some that were, they give their trade or whatever, they, you know, they just been normal people. And right. God said, hey, go do this for me. And he became a prophet at that moment for that purpose. Good. Only that once. Yeah, absolutely. A prophet is just somebody who speaks for the Lord. So some of them may have done that more full-time, and some of them may have just had certain messages they delivered. Which helps with the beginning of the story with Jonah. Is it like, uh, and you're constantly getting messages from God and delivering them, and then this one time he just runs away. It's like, right. you know, you would think being a full-time prophet, you would have a clue that that ain't going to work. <laughs> I think he should have had a clue anyway. But. Exactly. But, you know, just, just trying to get a... Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, I know. I don't know how many messages he delivered for God or anything like that. Could have been a lot of good. Keeping the options open as right. No, I agree. Man. I agree. Other thoughts. All right. Well, that was good to do. I